0: This is Think Like a Genius. Tread the line of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, persuasion, and so much more than gray matter. Let's dive in as we fall into a world of intrigue. And now, Think Like a Genius with your host, Lance Fantinar. Welcome to Thinking Like a Genius Podcast. My name is Lance Vontemar, your host. And today's topic, I am talking about emotions and thinking. I was trying to figure out how emotions actually fit into thinking and the role that emotions have on thinking and decision making. The core thing that I was trying to unpick was to understand how emotions actually were used by the brain to actually process information. And also then find out how much influence emotion actually does have on your thinking and your decision making process and also your capability and have a better understanding of the role of emotions in decision making in general. Part of the research that I actually looked into uncovered some really interesting aspects to it, which is why I've decided to actually do a podcast about it, because I didn't really understand the intricacies of emotions and decision making and how you process information at that level. So the first part of the process of my research was to actually understand how the brain actually processes information. And the second part of the uh, research then uncovered how much emotion actually influences your decision making and how much it actually influences remembering and recalling information as well. To better understand the process, I looked at a quite a lot of research into various areas and to actually identify the emotions used and how they actually use. So the thing that I found out was that there are six core emotions, which are based on Ekman's work, Friesen and Ellsworth. And what they found out the six core emotions are happiness, anger, sadness, disgust, surprise and fear. These are all the basic emotions. And although you can extrapolate them and add other levels of emotions to them because the core emotions then spider out almost into a whole lot of sub-emotions, which are all feeding back to these core emotions. But there's some additional ones which come in like uh, joy and rage, which are elevated versions of happiness and anger. And you've also got interest and shame and anguish. Now, the interesting thing about this is that These emotions can be one either very, very powerful or very obvious, or they can be very subtle. And this is how it all has a very interesting interplay into your decision making process because of these really subtle hints of how it actually changes your choices and the decisions that you make based on. A number of factors the influences are actually quite wide and quite subtle in how the this whole dynamic process actually changes your perceptions on a day-to-day basis one of the main questions I actually asked was how does the brain actually process information emotionally so the brain actually processes information by converting words and pictures into emotions it's the easiest way that it can actually package the emotions or the, the information up and move it around into the various parts of the brain. Uh, you can either use it in short-term memory, but then as soon as the emotions come tied into it, it will then go moved into your long-term memory because the emotions act as almost like a wrapper and it's all, it, it helps the storage and the recall of the information at a later date. So what happens is that you process words and the inf- uh, information on a, an emotional level as it's the fastest way of getting information in and out of the brain. It's almost like it adds a level of power to the information for the brain to actually get it, to remember it or to process it or to associate it with the relevant pieces of information. The other thing that it does, it relies heavily on pattern recognition and emotions can dramatically increase the speed to get the end results. What happens is that as soon as you identify a pattern, the brain can almost bypass a number of, uh, you could say, heuristics or rules that it relies on and get to a decision-making aspect of what to do almost instantaneous. Let's say, for instance, you are scared of snakes and you've got fear attached to the image of the snake, but also the word of a snake. And sometimes it can be even a sound which is associated to it. Let's say, for instance, it's a rattlesnake or even a cobra or something of that nature. You've got some really distinctive sounds which are associated by with fear, which then trigger a bunch of other processes in your amygdala, which trigger the fight or flight response. So what happens as soon as you hear it, you identify it, you bypass any critical thinking, and you go into a you could say, response process of actually protecting yourself. That can either be, if you're really scared, if you follow uh, Stephen Porcher's polyvagal theory, you can get to a point where you actually freeze. So your body actually freezes completely as a, as a protective mechanism. In the case of snakes, it's a really good thing to do because if you don't move, they don't react because they don't sense any fear or vibration of movement. The other aspect is you can actually run away if you've not gone to that really low level of of the fear trigger, the vagus nerve, where it actually disables any movement. So that's another way that you can actually protect yourself. The other aspect is obviously you can try and attack, but that can potentially be very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing because you you can get bitten. And if you get bitten by a poison snake, obviously the, the consequences are quite serious. Hence the preference will be for either running away or for actually standing still completely. None of those aspects would have linked into any kind of critical analytical thought. The only way that you'll potentially link into analytical critical thought is if you've been in a situation where you've previously dealt with snakes and the previous experience can actually override some of the really strong, powerful emotions, which allows you to then act with a lot more thought and a lot more calmness. Than just emotionally reacting to it because it then fires off a bunch of physiological responses to it. So that's one way where emotions can have a really powerful effect on your decision making process, dangerous situation. The other aspect is that this emotional process, where you actually bypass a lot of heuristic thinking and analytical thinking, means that your decision making process can be one, life saving and really quick, or two, really quick and really bad, which means you can actually make a decision before you've got all the information and then you justify the decision after the fact with supporting information, which is where confirmation bias comes in. But that whole process of jumping from the one point to the decision point is also a good indication that you're jumping to a conclusion, which is a good example where you can say, I never really looked at it from that perspective. You know, I was completely wrong. My decision was, or my assessment of that person was completely wrong or if you've gone to a movie and you've made a decision based on something previously, either on an actor's previous work or anything of that nature, and you can go back and say, I really didn't expect that. That's a whole process of that's a, a way of explaining jumping to conclusion because you've made a decision based on an emotional attachment and previous preconceptions of a person or a situation. Now, the next aspect of this is that because emotions work on a, you could almost say on a primal level, it works really fast on a fight or flight scenario. Once a first, you could say, gateway has been passed, whether it's threatening or that's safe, you will change your decisions almost immediately based on those first few signals that you get. And that means that you can go from either really fast emotional processing or you can be in a more relaxed, open state, which means you've got a lot more creative, relaxed, social, engaged, aspect of decision making because the emotional overrides are not as strong on your thinking process because you don't have all of these really powerful emotions which are triggering the flight or fight scenarios which would have an impact on your decision making so if you're in a friendly open relaxed scenario with a social engagement you've got low stress levels and your physical demands and your body or brain is a lot, lot more different. You've got a really open, accepting way of processing information. You are enjoying the engagement a lot more. Your physiological ch- responses to information is completely different. And you've got a really open way of actually looking at things and assessing information. You don't have a hyper-focused awareness of dealing with a situation which is potentially life threatening in any way. And this whole scenario can change whether it's a physical or actually a perceived Threat. So, sometimes it could be an emotional trigger based on stress condition. So, it doesn't even have to be a physical scenario which, which can affect this. Now, stress, on the other hand, can also bypass a lot of the hyperfrontal cortex, which is the front part of the brain. And because the fight or flight scenario, because triggering the amygdala and fear kicking in, it's a really primal way of actually getting to the physiological part of your body to actually respond quickly. The reason why fear is so effective is that you're not going from, you could say the input, which could be visual, audio, or any other input, to then get processed by the front part of the brain, to then get processed by the deeper part of the brain, which then gets a trigger or a reaction. Because the response mechanism is coming into your visual cortex or your sound, it goes directly into the amygdala if it's perceived to be threatening, which means your amygdala there then responds immediately by triggering uh, the hormones, the physiological responses, and all the other aspects, which actually gets you into a state that you can actually deal with a potentially threatening scenario so this is how the stress conditions and cortisol can also trigger these uh, these scenarios on a on a regular basis the big issue with that is because you're sitting in a stressful situation at all times this starts causing overload and starts causing more complex problems which can have a detrimental effect on how you actually manage and deal with situations short levels of stress are actually quite good for the body because it actually you you start using The various hormones and emotional responses in a way to actually challenge the body so there's nothing wrong with a certain amount of stress at a certain amount of time when you start having continued stress over a long period of time you start changing your physiological responses and because you're continually tapping into the threat levels of your emotions and also your nervous system you start racking up a bunch of other issues which start causing problems I'll refer to the vagus nerve interview I did with Stefan Khamalik, where he talks about a lot of the responses in the various parts of the brain and how it actually works and, and how it affects. I'll do another vagus nerve-specific Podcast to dive into that a bit more, and I'll pick it a bit more to make it a bit easier for people to understand and to explain how all of these processes work. This whole process of the primal processing of information is really important for the brain to provide one of its core functions, which is to ensure the host's survival. That's one of its main functions on every given day, is to ensure your survival. Anything else becomes, you could say, secondary to actually ensuring survival. So those are why fight or flight or any of those systems will override any other processing and considerations because it's a primal requirement for actually protecting you as a person and your survival. As I've said before, the amygdala is connected to the brainstem and this is connected to the rest of the nervous system, which allows direct integration through the vagus nerve, which triggers autonomic nervous system uh, management and sending signals to your heart, your lungs, and your organs to activate either hormones or to dump adrenaline into your body, which then gives you more energy to actually deal with the potential situation. Now, going back to research, according to Lowenstein and Lerner's classification, what they did is they decided that there are two emotion types which are used in decision-making. So the first one they looked at was called anticipated emotion. And this is a future emotion and one used in immediate decision-making. Now, most of the research was actually focusing on the risk-return scenario. And their research actually uncovered that decision-makers... Tend to compare the results of a decision, what could have happened, rather than the current state. And that is where you've got a future scenario, you imagining an end result, and you are, you could say, creating a potential outcome that could be as a way of either motivating yourself or you could say getting you to work towards that end goal. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean something's going to happen, but it does give you a bit of a motivation to get to an end point it ties into a whole lot of intrinsic extrinsic motivation. So there's, uh, there's a lot of subtlety to the whole scenario. Now, the other thing that it does is that time does play a big part in how the uh, decision outcomes are assessed, are assessed apparently. People who have a preference for short term outcomes on, uh, on decisions when it comes to, you could say the anticipated emotions. And it also means that longer results, if it appears less valuable to somebody than something which is short-term. I think this ties into the whole satisfaction aspect of motivation and also the reasoning for making decisions. If something is short-term and it can satisfy your return and give a positive feedback loop, it's a short-term way of actually being motivated to carry on. And it's a good way of actually building up into a long-term decision which is why goal setting works really well when you have small goals and they close together because you start building up a motivation over a period of time which supports a long-term goal when you have a really long-term goal and there's nothing in between you and the end result it starts making it very difficult and this whole anticipated emotion starts becoming really difficult which ties into disappointment and regret, and a bunch of other emotions, which is where this actually affects your ability to reach a long-term goal, because there's nothing intermediate for you to work on to get to the long-term goal. And this is known as hyperbolic discounting, where you actually prefer the smaller rewards, which occur sooner over the longer uh, rewards at a later time. The next part of it is that it can also predict a person's future emotional state as i've said before if it is if there's a long-term goal and you don't reach it then regret and disappointment and a bunch of the other negative emotions start kicking in and that can lead to a lack of motivation and helplessness which can kick in because of that so the process that influences the preferences and the decisions and the behaviors in the future are dependent on all of these aspects. These also can be affected by positive or negative emotions at that time, and also by the intensity of the emotions. When it comes to initial emotion, I've rarely found one where positive emotion has been the first driver to actually make a significant change. For most of the research that I've done, all have had a significant amount of negative emotion to act as an initial driver to actually start the process because you're going from a place of fear of a lack of, and this ties into a certain amount of dissonance between future emotional state and your current emotional state. It's where the whole motivational aspect comes in. And as the smaller goals are started reaching, you become more motivated and you start working on, on your longer-term goals. I've not seen a positive emotional state when it comes to a big change in your life as much as what I've seen the negative ones. I've seen positive emotional states, which make you more keen to actually get involved in something because there's a very short reward loop, which is tied to it. But that tends to be most of the time, you could say more you could say social or something else that you really want to do because of the immediate reward that you get. I think with a, with the longer term rewards, negative a negative one seems to be the one that's most prevalent. I can I'm happy to be pointed out to be incorrect on that, but I've yet have to find something that counters that. You could say proof because I've based it on my own life. Now the other interesting thing is that biases have got a big influence on people's decision making when it comes to the forecasting aspect this is apparently especially the case when there are errors which occur during the sole forecasting process and this can actually disable people from accurately predicting future emotions so what basically happens is that if there's any mistake or any errors in that you start referring to your defaults which are your biases. As I've stated before, I don't think, as Daniel Kahneman has said, that biases are errors or faults. I think biases are defaults, which you have as part of your brain that's developed. I will go specifically into biases at a later state, giving that as an explanation, but I've yet to see one where people don't have biases. I think some biases are overridden through experience or training or even awareness. But I don't think that it's an error. I think it's a default state. The following biases have an effect on your future emotional state. The impact bias, more or less, it means that people overestimate an emotional impact on or in future events. Now, overestimation is generally an issue regardless of time or emotional state from previous research I've looked into. It's something that people do on a general day to day basis. It means that people tend to be a lot more overconfident, especially in an area where they are less knowledgeable because of the whole ignorance aspect. It's easier to make a yes or no decision based on little information because as you start adding more and more information, your confidence reduces over time. And this has been proven with research on a regular basis. It's there's no mystery to that. The other biases are expectation effect. So sense making process has found that a small gift given as a surprise produces a larger emotional reaction than one with a reason as it facilitates a sense making behavior when there's a reason that's, uh, that, a, uh, that a gift is attached to it. And part of that is because it ties into a novelty aspect of the gift giving aspect. And this whole novelty surprise, aspect triggers a huge dopamine release which is why people love surprises. You don't have to be a scientist or a rocket scientist to understand that a surprise is much more rewarding to the other person that's receiving the gift than something which there's a certain amount of explanation of why they're getting the gift. A great example are birthday presents we never expected or Christmas presents which is why this whole, you could say, tradition is around gift giving with it being wrapped up in paper and everything else because it provides that whole dopamine release when somebody opens a present and it's novel or it's new or it's unexpected. People feel really good when they receive a gift, which is unexpected. It makes them feel fantastic. They smile, they're happy. It's all kinds of good emotions that kick in because of it. Now, the other thing that they found out is that you can have an immune effect to actually counter some of the emotional impact on your decision making what happens is that it refers to a forecaster's lack of awareness of a tendency to to adapt or cope with negative events let's say for instance part of your work needs to deal with what if scenarios you go through the process of dealing with say an emergency situation you drill through the situation You are more or less pre-programmed to deal with various situations. People throw in a bunch of surprise uh, elements into it. And it basically tests your decision-making skills and your coping mechanism during a negative situation overall. So this almost pre-programs you to be a lot more adapted in a situation and to be a lot more creative with it and be able to cope with the changes in the emotional state because of the surprises that come in. What happens is the same aspect as the whole surprise and novelty thing when somebody gives you a gift, this whole scenario can be flipped when it comes to a negative situation because your lack of awareness or your lack of being You could say programmed to be able to cope in a situation which would counter the emotional reaction to something negative is now not there. So, if something happens that you're not emotionally programmed to cope with, you dump from being really positive to being really negative in an immediate state. And that can be anything from being stuck in traffic and then having a flat tire and then trying to get to work and then. The whole emotional state changes from being slightly stressed to incredibly stressed and to be disappointed because your expectations have changed completely because of the scenarios changed just by an event, a random event, which you're not expecting, you don't normally deal with. This can be countered very, very easily, because you have to realize that life is incredibly random. And unless you actually go through life with a really predictable schedule, and you know, every part of your life is always going to be that way. This change is a way of challenging how you cope with things on a day to day basis. People with better coping strategies can actually recover faster from an emotional event like that. And that comes down to training, it comes down to exposure, it comes to experience, and also comes down to maturity of actually dealing with life's various challenges, which is part of the reason why it's a good thing to have various experiences and be exposed to various things, because it allows you to cope with emotional changes of challenging situations, positive versus negative effect. Now, the accuracy of future emotional forecasting for positive and negative emotions is apparently dependent on the amount of time before an event happens. So what they found out is that positive emotional forecasting is more accurate for long-term future events. And conversely, negative effects are more accurate for short-term forecasting. As yet, I have to refine my understanding of the research on this to see how it actually ties into day-to-day thinking. I'll have to do a bit more research on that because I'm not 100% sure how to translate that into actionable content for people. Immediate emotions or true emotions. Intense emotions apparently negate probability of possible outcomes, which I found really quite interesting. So as an example, let's go with post-9-11 fear of flying. What that did is that it actually increased driving. Statistically, it was safer, flying was safer than driving. So let's see just from a, you could say, research point of view. If you take a look at the amount of accidents that happens when flying in comparison to the amount of driving, the amount of air miles flown and the amount of people moved in flying, although it's more, the risk associated is a lot less because the amount of security which is wrapped around the whole flying process because the threat to life. Where if you take into consideration driving, the amount of people driving on the roads at any given time is, from a numbers perspective, much, much higher than what is in flying. Although flying, you have more people that you're moving at any given time, it's very strictly controlled and there's a lot of security protocols built into and there's a lot of, you could say, protected mechanisms to actually make sure that the process is safe. Conversely, with driving, although there's a lot of training to give people a certain amount of capability, there are a lot of random things which can influence a scenario or a drive from one point to the other point, which can be weather conditions, road conditions, Personal conditions, uh, decision-making, you know, how they feel at the time. There can be an accident. Somebody else has an accident. You can have a knock-on effect. Uh, as an example, motorways, although they very, very safe because they're designed to be safe, the impact of one person having an accident on a busy motorway can have a compound effect on a bunch of other drivers on that same road. So suddenly, what you can have is you can have a bunch of people driving safely, and then suddenly you can have a very huge number of cars which are you know, which are piled up into each other, and you can have a massive amount of loss of life in one single incident. Conversely, because of this whole post nine eleven scenario, because there were a lot less people flying, people felt safer because they were driving because they felt they had more control of the situation, and control is as the perception. By actively being involved in a decision-making process, they feel more in control, which means they feel a lot more safer. But if you take a look at the amount of numbers around the car accidents that, probably, that happened at the time, the amount of people that died because of it is much higher than what the flying was. So that's an interesting scenario that's come out of that uh, research the next piece of work which has come out which i looked into was feister and bomb's framework of how emotions function in decision making uh, and which they saw as being quite integral so what they found out uh, is that there are four roles played by emotions you've got the providing information aspect, which is positive and negative emotions felt during assessment, which is driven by pleasure or displeasure spectrum. And I find this quite interesting because it relies on the whole like or dislike aspect of any kind of decision making. What this indicates is that positive emotion can actually positively affect a decision Either way, if you feel a lot more positive, you're a lot more relaxed about decision-making, which means you can be you can have a different outcome on a decision than when you are in a negative situation. The psychological state changes, your risk decision-making changes dramatically, and your information and how it's assessed will change how the end decision works. And this is why decision-making can be so variable when it comes to being happy or sad. That same scenario can change dramatically when somebody's happy or positive, or whether somebody's sad and depressed. Improving speed. Good decision-making is important, just as much as fast decision-making. Emotions have a very big role in the speed of decision-making, and that relies on a number of aspects. It relies on previous experience, it relies on emotional state, it relies on you know the knowledge of any kind of decision that you're making, It just comes down to making snap decisions based on experience, previous situations, the amount of knowledge that you've got, whether you like or dislike something. The interesting thing is that somatic markers can have a play on this. They can actually encourage a decision which is made. Now, somatic markers is something that Damasio looked into specifically. You could explain it as a hunch. Sometimes decisions are based on a hunch. You've got that gut feeling. Although you don't have all information, you've got that gut feeling, which you are making your decision on. It's almost like it's an initial indicator of the decision making that you're going to do. It's where you say, oh, that, I just, it just felt right. You didn't have any clear information, but your emotions and that push basically gave you an idea of which way you would lean when it came to decision making. Next one that is in Pfizer and Baum's framework is the assessing of relevance. This is very important. Emotions determine the relevance to you and also your situation. And this is determined by your beliefs, your personal history or your experience, the state of your mind, whether it's positive or negative, as this leads to different sets of relevant information. I hinted at it previously, but the more information makes sense to you and the more that it's emotionally satisfying to you and the more that it, you could say, ties into your knowledge store and your associative ideas and how you feel about it. The more the decision is going to feel better to you, the more you feel like you've got more control over the decision. So the two emotions which have the biggest influence on your relevance are regret and disappointment, apparently, which is really very interesting. I think that ties into more the outcome of a decision. I'm not sure how much it ties into actually making the decision. I found that a bit of an interesting insight into the whole process. The last role I was able to uh, find out was the enhancing commitment. Apparently, selfish decisions may be seen as best overall, regardless of, you could say, the altruistic aspect of decision making, which can be done acting in the best of others or community can also affect commitment and these can be determined by love or guilt and I think you can also tie into that a bunch of the other uh, social aspects of persuasion and also social interaction if you've got somebody who's close to you depending on your relationship to them you can either make a decision based on liking and love and all of the positive aspects of that emotion or the decision can be driven by guilt because you feel bad if you don't make a certain. Decision in the favor of the other person. So, those are interesting aspects to the process. Now, to dive into the actual decision making process, which I wanted to get a lot of clarity on because I wasn't 100% sure how this information was processed when it came to decisions. And what it does, it uses two methods. First of all, is your heuristic processing. And the second of all, is your systematic processing. I'll look into the systematic processing first of all, because that deals with a lot of the analytical functions of your brain and it requires a lot of cognitive functioning and also a lot of reasoning so it's uh, if i remember correctly it's system 2 thinking if you base it on think fast and slow so it's your conscious prefrontal cortex it's also your analytical slow knowledge gathering part of your thinking process. So you become a lot more deliberative about uh, processing of information because the lack of information means that you are actually looking to make sense and create a coherent knowledge structure which you're basing your decision on. So you require less emotion on but you require a lot more time and effort to collate information and to make sense out of it all and to create a knowledge structure of what you're looking at. And then categorizing the information identifying patterns identifying structures of information and then tying it into the immediate information that you're building out for yourself but then also potentially linking it to other knowledge stores and other experiences that you have. And that starts tying into the relevance aspect of the information and how it actually makes sense to you. The more the information is actually relevant to you, the easier it is to process the information, actually make it stick and for you to actually feel like you actually understand it because you actually start attaching it to your other neural networks and your thought patterns and your knowledge that you've got. It depends on other factors like your motivation and also your cognitive capacity to actually deal with information. If you're highly motivated to actually look at the information because you're very interested in it, you like it or you dislike it, you're going to be more interested in actually making sense of the information to actually get value out and the more cognitive capacity you've got to it the more working memory that you've got to it, the the more rested you are the healthier you feel the easier it is for you to actually focus on it and spend time and actually collating all the information to build it out into something usable so the motivation to process way this way is actually determined by the gap between the desired and the actual confidence in the judgment or the attitude that you have. From what they found out is that motivation increases when the judgment is deemed important, which uh, makes sense to me, and the relevance to you. If it's something very important, very relevant, you've got a huge amount of uh, motivation to make the right decision. If you have a low motivation because you either don't like the information or it's not a decision that is important to you, There's low relevance, which means your decision making is going to be a lot faster, and you're going to rely on a lot more. You could say basic processing of actually making a decision. So this effort between the actual and the desired confidence, and also the beginning and the end stage, is determined by the the effort and the motivation. The more effort that you have to think, the more effort, the more there's going to be a gap between your confidence level between the start and the finish. If you have a low level of confidence and you've in a lot of effort into it it's going to be a lot more motivated for you to make the decision if you have got a lot of confidence in your decision making you're going to you're not going to spend as much time to actually make the decision because you don't feel that you need to put in that level of effort to actually collate the information and to make something useful out of the, uh, the information store that you've got. So systematic processing uses thorough understanding of your information and it requires a lot of careful attention. It requires deep thinking and also very intensive reasoning, which obviously relies on focus and time to actually make sense of the information. The systematic processing, as I mentioned before, requires quite a lot of information gathering because you're reading up on the information, you're trying to collate it, categorize it and store it and you know make sense out of it all you spend a lot of time evaluating information and the structuring of the information into a knowledge tree or a structure and how it also integrates into either previous experience or other knowledge that you've got is all a way of actually building into something of a cohesive whole, creating a bigger library of information that you're working with. And the relevance also comes into play as it starts becoming more coherent to you. The factors which can affect This are negativity, negative emotions, stressful conditions, lack of time, urgency, your working memory, if you feel rested, or if you rushed your fatigue levels, and also the the amount of demand that's required of your decision making. If you really rushed, you don't have time, you're feeling tired, you, you, you feel that you've got a lack of energy, this will have an impact on how well your decision making is actually done. It comes to an interesting quote of the term, you're so broke you can't even pay attention. The less energy and capacity you've got, the less you're willing to pay attention to it. It's a nice little way of actually tying it together. Systematic processing is a core requirement when it comes to the heuristics part of your processing. Heuristics part of the processing you could almost consider as a rule base. So it's a very simple process, which you build out your rules. And it's almost like a checklist. And it relies on preconditions that you've set yourself. You also end up relying on a lot of stereotypes of information. And this is a way that your brain classifies information and makes it easier to process uh, something. So if you've got a stereotype of information, let's say a chair is classified as something with four legs or sitting on the floor, or it can be a stool or something of that nature, and that information allows you to classify a bunch of objects almost into seated or furniture or something of that nature. The same way that stereotypes of information can also determine how you actually evaluate something. Let's say, for example, a sports car. You know the stereotype of a sports car is something that's either got very big engine, say V8, V12, or something with a lot of horsepower with a turbo on. It's something that's very low to the ground. It's got very big tires. It's got various other design features which allows it to go faster and be able to cope with the the road conditions at very high speed. That's a stereotype of information. You can look at it. You can quickly pull it in and you don't have to do a lot of processing based on that because you've already got that information preconditioned into what you know. And as I've said before, your current knowledge structure relies on a certain amount of stereotyping. So your historical knowledge will also have a determining factor in, in building up your rule base. The next aspect which also plays a part are your biases, how your brain actually processes information based on people in your group, your preferences, whether it's information that you find when using a confirmation bias there's a bunch of other biases which come into play on something could be from a Previous bit of information, so you rely on the. I'm trying to think of the term, but because you've got this previous information that you're relying on, it actually predetermines your decision making because you're using, you could say, old information. The other aspect is situational cues. You can actually influence a person's decisions based on situational cues. Let's say, for ex- uh, for example, you walk into a, a coffee shop. You will be more inclined to buy coffee because you're in a coffee shop because you've got the smell of coffee or the the different types of coffee you've got all of the associated information which supports the need for coffee which means that the, the position that you're in will influence whether you buy coffee or not unless you've got an overriding desire to actually drink tea or you can't don't like coffee that whole scenario will actually deter, uh, have an impact in your decision making and then last of all you got your rules that you've previously built out in your decision making let's take a look at some of the rules If you've got a precondition that you've decided when it comes to a decision, let's say you're buying a jacket and your precondition, it's got to be a leather one and it's got to be say black. Your next part of your decision-making process is reliant on the preconditions that you've set yourself and you then tick through a number of, you could say, rules that you look for when it actually looks at the jacket. What is a fit like? What is a design like? Is it as is it buttoned? Are you looking for something more fashionable or are you looking potentially for a motorbike jacket? For the ladies, are you looking for something form-fitting or are you looking for something longer? So these are all the little rules that you've set up in your decision-making process based on an overarching precondition that you've set yourself up. Now, how do these all tie into emotions and your decision-making process? So what happens with the emotional aspect of your decision-making is that depending on the, the choice that you're making will depend how you actually run through this whole process. If it's something which you've not dealt with before, You will go through the whole information collection phase and the systematic processing to actually gather information to then make your decision based on a yes or no liking aspect of it. As you go through the knowledge gathering process, you then start building up your rules, your heuristics checkbox, of what you like and what you don't like out of the information. And as you start going through this information, you start laying down these rules of how you that will either support or change your decision based on this whole process. Now what happens is that the last aspect of the decision-making relies on the emotional aspects of whether you like or dislike the information. If you do like what it is that you're getting out of the information or something that you prefer, you will then use these rules or biases to actually support your decision-making If it's something that you're using the whole rule-based process, there's a dislike aspect to it. You will use this information to support the decision making you're doing based on the emotional preference or the prevalence of how you're using the whole process. Now, if you fast forward the process, you can actually overlay some of the information to make decisions in other areas, but you can almost bypass the whole process because of the emotional state or the emotional load. Let's say use the whole jacket example let's say you go and you're looking at something else maybe a, a, a another blazer or you're looking at an overcoat or something of that nature some of the previous decisions or likes or dislikes that you can do can then feed into this decision when it comes to color choice design choice anything of that nature because you've already got these preconditions set up you can actually get to a decision of like or dislike very very quickly because you've got a precondition that you've built in based on a previous decision. And this is how the whole process actually ties into it. There is some interesting research which Damasio came out with, which I've not discussed. What he found out is that one of his patients had some damage to the emotional centers of his brain. And what happens is that the patient in question was very good at analyzing the information looking at the pros and cons, going through all of the analytical detail of the decision-making process. But making the decision was really, really difficult for him because he didn't have, you could almost say the emotional load to make a decision based on a like or a dislike, which I found really very interesting. Because he actually had this lack of liking or disliking, it had a very big impact on his actual capability for making decisions. Apparently he was a, very successful businessman and was very high up, I think it was in the finance industry or something of that nature. But because he had this damage to the emotional parts of his brain one of the things that he did is that he made some very bad decisions when it came to financial decisions, almost to the point where it ruined him financially because of the whole aspect of not having an emotional way of allowing the decisions to be weighted, yes or no. If you actually dive into the psychology of financial decisions based on risk and based on decision making, I'll go into that at a, at a later stage because I think that can be quite a detailed topic. but the fact is that this patient wasn't able to make very good quality financial decisions because of the lack of the emotional capability to load a decision into a yes-no perspective. And that is really very important when you actually think about the whole process is because your emotions are key to actually determining whether it comes down to something as simple as a yes or a no. The other thing to take into consideration, emotions can have such a powerful effect on your actual choices that you make and that's why people sometimes say that they've lost their head and they have no idea why they made the decision that they made they just they couldn't explain it it was just they lost their head they made a decision it was a bad decision and they say I can't explain it I don't know why I did what I did I just I don't know why and this comes down to the fact that your emotions can very much override your critical analytical thinking because of the whole scenario. And that is where the only way that you can actually counteract a very strong emotional overriding capability on your decision making is the whole aspect of suspending judgment. Because judgment, unfortunately, preconceives you to make a decision based on either historical belief systems, biases, or something of that nature. The judgment aspect is an easy way of using preconditions to determine a decision. Sometimes decisions can be badly made to counter the whole emotional load aspect and the, the overriding aspect into your decision making by suspending judgment and looking at it just purely from an informational point of view and paying attention to it and being more aware of it and being more aware of your emotional response to the scenario and the information that you've got. Now you've got a potential way of actually being able to counter some of the effects that emotions can have on your decision making. But it is something that you have to train yourself up on. And it is something that you have to build into your awareness when it comes to information. What you need to remember is that life is random as it is. There's no guaranteed that any given day is going to be the same and any given situation is always going to be the same and because there is actually n- very little or no control over what happens at any given time attaching too much emotion to it means that you can actually have a lack of learning and it means that you're basing a your decision making on a bunch of other preconditions. and it also means that it's a lot easier to actually get stuck in a rut because you're relying on preconditions to determine your future behaviors While suspending judgment allows you a lot more creativity in your thought patterns and it allows you a lot more insight into what's actually happening. Thank you for listening. As always, I'd appreciate your support and sharing and also commenting on the podcast. All the best. This is Lance Vantanar, changing the world one thought at a time. When you support and review a podcast like this from someone like Lance, it gains more visibility and motivates him to produce more. What topics most interest you? The best topic gains a shout out on the podcast.